We continue our series in Matthew's Gospel, and I ask that you turn now to the 12th chapter. We will look together at the first 14 verses. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 14. Let us bow before the Lord before reading. Our Father and our God, this shepherd, under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus, who is the great shepherd of the sheep, who shed his blood for his people, now prays for his people. And I ask that you will enable the one who proclaims the word to do so with truth, clarity, and passion, that the word of the Lord, which is this light that guides our feet, this great book of redemptive history that shows us Jesus, the Redeemer, on every page, that the Spirit of God will now use the exposition of this word to open our minds and illumine our hearts that we may see more deeply and clearly who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and that we may be called from our own righteousness, for we have none, to the righteousness of Christ alone for our redemption, and that we as believers in Jesus may learn to depend upon him alone day by day, moment by moment, for all things at all times. And we pray that those who are here today who are strangers to grace, who do not know you at all, may may be found of you, that you would reach down in your great grace and mercy and save to the uttermost those who come to God by you and come because the Spirit of God enables. Will you bless in that way this church and this congregation? We ask, Father, therefore, that our worship at this time may enable us to focus upon Jesus as found in this text before us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
This is a sermon on the theme of self-righteousness. That's really what this text is all about. Where Jesus is, there will be controversy. Where his gospel goes, there will be controversy. We have already seen in a prior text in Matthew's gospel the promise that Jesus came not to bring peace but a sword. And so here the Lord Jesus comes and there is controversy. Controversy here regarding the Sabbath, but the real controversy is about the state of the heart. It's about self-righteousness. There's a great deal about legalism in this passage that we need to think through together. But first of all, we need to understand the controversy itself, and so that's the first point, the controversy. We see it in the first two verses, at least how it begins to develop. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples, what your, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Let's ask three questions about this controversy. First of all, what did the law permit? Well, if you read the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy chapter 23, you find that it was permissible for someone to pluck a neighbor's, uh, a neighbor's corn as long as he used his own hands and, uh, and it was permissible if you were hungry to glean on the edges of fields. The Pharisees saw this as reaping. And so when done on the Sabbath, it was considered Sabbath breaking. What did the law expect? The law expected that the Sabbath would be a rule of life that was given for the glory of God and for the encouragement of God's people and for the service of others. What did the rabbis legislate? Uh, Rabbinic law legislated every possible circumstance. Now, I bring into the pulpit today the history of the Jewish people, at least a small portion of that multi-volume set by Schur. It's a very, very interesting set and very helpful to the New Testament interpreter. And he tells us this about uh, the rabbis. The rabbis could not rest satisfied with simple prohibition. They must also accurately define what work was forbidden. And consequently, they at last, with much ingenuity, got out of it that on the whole, 39 kinds of work were prohibited, but very few, of course, anywhere alluded to in the Pentateuch. These 39 works that were prohibited were these. Uh, Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, and warping it making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing two stitches, catching a deer, killing, skinning, salting it, preparing its skin, scraping off the hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, blotting out for the purpose of writing two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, beating smooth with a hammer, and carrying from one tenement to another. Each of these chief enactments, again, require further discussion concerning their range and meaning. Let me give you another example from Schur. The prohibition of making and untying a knot on the Sabbath was much too general to rest satisfied with. It was also necessary to state what kind of knot this applied and to what it did not. The following are the knots, the making of which renders a man guilty. Uh, The knot of camel drivers and that of sailors and as one is guilty by reason of tying, so also of untying the knots. Rabbi Meyer says, guilt is not incurred by reason of a knot, which can be untied with one hand, 
There are knots by reason of which one is not guilty as one is in the case of a camel driver's and sailor's knots. A woman may tie up the slit of her shift and the strings of her cap, those of her girdle, the straps of the shoes and sandals of skins of wine and oil of a pot with meat. And to tie strings of the girdle being permitted, it was agreed that a pail also might be tied over the well with a girdle, but not with a rope. Beside these 39 chief works, says Shearer, many other actions and employments which cannot be summed up are also forbidden. And that gives you an idea of how the rabbis viewed the Sabbath day. And that's why, of course, the controversy that we see here in this passage. So you understand the controversy, do you not? Uh, Jesus and the rabbis, a totally different idea of what the Sabbath is really all about. The second thing you want to see in this passage is that Jesus challenges the Pharisees' authority. And he does this in two ways. First of all, Jesus challenges the Pharisees' authority by citing the Word of God. And he cites the Word of God in three different ways. First of all, he cites this passage from 1 Samuel 21 that we read this morning when David and his men were on an expedition, they were hungry, they went into the tabernacle and they took the showbread, the holy bread, in order that they might eat and continue their expedition of holy warfare for their God. In order to point to 1 Samuel 21, it was necessary that he demonstrate to them that deeds, some deeds are necessarily done on the Sabbath. And so that passage shows that deeds of necessity are appropriate on the Sabbath. And then there is an allusion to Numbers 29, 9 through 10, and and Leviticus 24, 8 through 9, in which he says, look, even the priests work on the Sabbath. It's part of their calling so to do, and so deeds of service are also appropriate on the Sabbath according to the Word of God. And then, of course, he references Hosea 6, 6. You find this in verses 7 and 8. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so by referencing Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, he also demonstrates that deeds of mercy are permissible on the Sabbath according to the word of God. And so deeds of necessity, deeds of service, deeds of mercy are all demonstrable from the word of God. And so it is appropriate that on this day, the Sabbath, that Jesus' disciples take these few grains in order to feed their hungry stomachs. You see, he cites God's word because God's word always strikes at self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and the word of God never go together. The word of God always points us away to our righteousness outside of ourselves that we need in order to be accepted by God. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees' authority by pointing to God's word. But he also points to something else. He challenges the authority of the Pharisees by pointing to his own greatness. And he does this in two ways. He does this, first of all, when he says in verse 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. He points to his own greatness. And indeed, we could spend all morning here, could we not? Jesus and his work, greater than the temple. He is the very presence of God. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice upon the altar. He fulfills all to which the temple and tabernacle pointed. He is greater than the temple. The point is this. If the priests could serve on the Sabbath, surely one who is greater than the temple can allow his disciples to pluck a few grains when hungry. D.A. Carson puts it beautifully. 
The authority of the temple laws shielded the priests from guilt. The authority of Jesus shields his disciples from guilt. Jesus then challenges their authority by saying he is greater than even the temple. And this was something for a Pharisee to hear. They swore by the temple, and yet Jesus says he's greater than the temple. But also in verse 8, he tells us that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the author of the Sabbath. He rules over the Sabbath law. He can handle it as he will. This is also quite remarkable. Really, he is claiming deity here. He is the author and Lord of the Sabbath. And so essentially he says to the Pharisees, you don't understand the purpose of the Sabbath, and I have the right to set aside your conventions because of who I am. Do you see who Jesus is? Do you recognize the authority of Christ in your life? Do you know that he rules, he reigns not only over the Sabbath, but over all things, and that he claims your life in every detail? just as he claimed theirs. But the third thing that I want you to see in the text is that not only has he challenged the authority of the Pharisees, but he unveils the falseness of their authority. He unveils their false authority. That is to say, he shows what is really in the heart. Hadn't God commanded Israel to call the Sabbath a delight in Isaiah 58, 13? The Sabbath was made for man's well-being, for man's enjoyment of God and service to our fellow man. The Pharisees were legalists. Their authority was false because their authority was not based upon the Word of God, but upon their own view of legality. Now, I think we need to pause for a few moments because legalism is not simply a matter of Pharisees. Every one of us has a Pharisee in the heart. All of us, in one way or another, are attracted to a legalism of one kind or another, and Christ came to do away with legalism. Let me say several things about legalism. The first thing I want to say about legalism is that legalism is not a heart's desire to obey the Word of God. Some people think that. That if you talk about obedience to the Word of God, it's legalism. That's not true. Every believer in Jesus Christ has had the law of God written upon his heart and should be concerned with obedience to the law of God. Not because we earn salvation, but because we love God, because we respond to his grace. Legalism is not a heart's desire to obey God's law. Legalism is a desire to obey God's law in order to be made right with God or a desire to obey God's law in order to maintain our relationship with God. That's legalism. It is self-effort, works righteousness, self-reliance. What's wrong with legalism? What are the issues involved with legalism? Let me say several things. First of all, legalism is dehumanizing. Legalism is always dehumanizing. It is an affront to God, but also it is degrading to man also. Some of you who have read Kaim Patak's novels have read about, in one of his novels, the Hasidic Jew who was a painter but was forbidden to paint because of a wrong reading of the second commandment. You see, you have this great and glorious calling to art, and yet he's not able to practice this great and glorious and wonderful calling because of a legalistic interpretation, a wrong interpretation of the law of God. It's always dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing here. You don't heal on the Sabbath day. Let the man hurt. Let the man's hand remain withered. You don't heal on the Sabbath. It's dehumanizing. But legalism also tends to abstraction. What I mean is this. 
Legalism says a lot about God without knowing God. Uh, Job's friends in the book of Job, many of them were like this. They said a lot about God, but they did not know God. Living in servile fear rather than in God's love. An inability really to say from the heart with the Apostle Paul, he loved me and he gave himself for me. Because legalism in its abstraction always obscures the personal pronouns. He loved me and gave himself for me. But legalism also misses the problem of sin. Wait, you might say, the Pharisees are constantly concerned with sin. No, they aren't. The Pharisees are concerned with sins, not sin. They're totally unconcerned with the question of sin. They're concerned with sins. You see, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Legalism misses the fundamental problem of the human heart and the need of grace and the need of mercy. And so legalism manifests itself in many ways. Legalism manifests itself in those who want to be justified by their works, made acceptable by what we do. Legalism can show in a Christian who believes that he will be sanctified by works, which is never true. Works are always fruit, never the root. Legalism is a view of self based on works, so I view myself constantly on the basis of how well I think I'm doing. Failing to understand the inflexibility of the law of God and its holiness and that it drives us to a savior. Legalism is an attempt to be godly by external behavior rather than the spring of grace in the heart that should lead to godly behavior. Legalism attempts to gain assurance founded on behavior rather than founded on the blood of Jesus. That's legalism. I hope you get it. I hope you understand it. But now let me say something about antinomianism. You say, well, pastor, this passage is about legalism, not antinomianism. I have a reason for this. We are not only concerned with legalism, we are also concerned with antinomianism. Some people consider these to be opposites. I'm going to argue that they aren't. What is antinomianism? Anti-law against law. When a Christian, for example, says the law has nothing to do with the Christian life, that's antinomianism. It's true that we are free from the condemnation of the law through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are under no condemnation whatsoever because of the work of Christ. But still, the law is a rule of life for the believer. A person who says, I can do what I will with my body because Jesus has cleansed my soul. That kind of Gnosticism is sheer antinomianism. Someone who says, I just follow the Spirit, it doesn't matter what God's Word says, I just follow the Spirit, it doesn't matter what the Bible teaches. Listen to Stephen Carnock, the Puritan. He says, a diabolical life and a believing heart are contradictions. No man can with any reason lay claim to a faith in Christ who prefers the pleasures of the world before the sweetness of a Redeemer, that which is an offense to him before that which is his delight. How can they believe in Christ that are carried down with a violent current of their own lusts and regard not one tittle of his law? If faith be full of good works, then the lack of such clearly implies the absence of faith. Antinomianism sets up an ethic based on relativism. Let me give you an example of that that I've seen time and time again as a pastor. 
Pastor, you don't understand. My circumstance is unique. Uh, Yeah, I know for other people it would be wrong for them to do that, but you just don't get my circumstance. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's right for me. I can actually, I can actually commit adultery with this woman, and I can do that because I love her and she loves me. And as long as we love one another, it's okay. That's antinomianism. And many a professing Christian has spoken to me or to the elders in that way. People of God, love fulfills the law. It doesn't set aside the law. When you love someone, you want what is good for that person. You want what is best for that person. And so you do not commit adultery because you want what is to God's glory and for that person's good and for the good of your own soul. Antinomianism says, I can trust in Christ as Savior, but it doesn't matter if I trust Him as Lord. No, no, you can't receive a divided Christ. You can't say, I'll receive him as my priest to forgive me, but I set him aside as king and prophet. When you receive Christ, you receive the whole Christ. You receive him as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king. Now, I want to relate legalism and antinomianism because they are twin heresies. They go together. Old John Duncan, one of the 19th century Scottish Presbyterian theologians, said the only heresy is antinomianism. What he meant by that is every heresy ultimately stems from the sinner's quarrel with the law of God. Every one of them. Both legalism and antinomianism set up their own standards. Both legalism and antinomianism are self-righteous. And the answer to both, the gospel. You cannot be saved by law. The answer is the gospel. For the saved by grace, law finds its place in the context of grace as a rule of life. The answer is the gospel. Neither legalism nor antinomianism, but the third way of the gospel. That's our calling. So that's what Jesus is doing. He is uncovering the heart. He's showing what really is there. These Pharisees have set up their own standard in the place of the law of God because deep within they are quarreling with the law of God. They are unwilling to see its perfection and be driven out of every refuge unto a Savior who even stands before them at this moment. Now the fifth thing I want you to see is Jesus demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his authority. There's this man as he entered the synagogue, and he has a withered hand. He can't use his hand. He can't work with his hand. He can't play with his hand. And Jesus is merciful and takes pity on this man. What the rabbis thought was this. The sick or injured should not be cured on the Sabbath unless their lives were in danger. Now look at this man. He has a withered hand, but his life isn't in danger. Uh, wait until tomorrow to heal the man, Jesus. And so Jesus says a parable, a little parable in verse 11. He said to them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? These Pharisees treat their animals as more precious than people. One minister wrote this paragraph. I think it's very good. 
One of the most obvious tragedies of Hinduism is its disregard for human welfare in the name of human welfare. A beggar is not given food because it would interfere with his karma and prevent him from suffering his way to the next highest level of existence. A fly is not killed because it is the reincarnation of some unfortunate human being of past ages. Rats are not killed for the same reason and are allowed to eat and contaminate food supplies without any interference. Cows are considered sacred and are given what food is available while human beings are allowed to starve. In a similar way, the Pharisees despise other human beings, showing more compassion for a sheep than for a crippled man who was even a fellow Jew. Think about that, young people, when you're tempted toward Eastern religion. See the consequences? You don't have to be a Pharisaical Jew in order to be a Pharisee and to demean human life. The source is the same, whether it's here or whether it's in India. The source is the same, disregard for man's special creation in the image of God. Jesus says, it is good to do good on the Sabbath because it glorifies God and it serves our fellow human beings. And then we read the healing in verse 12. So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. You see, the Pharisees' religion was a cover for their rebellion against God. They didn't even want this poor man healed on the Sabbath. They forgot Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? They forgot all about mercy. The law of God could not heal this man. Pharisaic misrepresentations of God's law could not heal this man. Only Jesus could heal this man, and only Jesus can heal a Pharisee's heart like mine and like yours. But did you see the result of what Jesus did? Did you see the result that came from it? We see it there in verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They didn't even stop to ask, who is this that can heal this man's withered hand? They didn't pause to ask, who is this man so filled with compassion and mercy and he has the ability to exercise divine healing? Who is this man? And do you see the irony? There is a willingness on the part of the Pharisees to break God's law in order to secure their version of God's law. They are willing to conspire to murder Jesus rather than to have their own hearts exposed. They would murder to justify themselves rather than come to God for justification. The Pharisees were not committed to the law of God. The Pharisees were committed to themselves. Jesus has demonstrated his authority, and they will have nothing of it. He has shown that he is the Messiah by authenticating it with his miracles and his claims, but they will not have the true Messiah. Self-righteousness keeps them in their sin. Now let me conclude this with a half dozen observations. More or less. First, 
Man-made religion is the ultimate truth suppression, the ultimate expression of self-righteousness. Ultimately, it is self-worship. It just looks more respectable than other sins. And so beware, beware. Religion cannot give you righteousness. Religion cannot justify you in God's presence. Religion cannot transform the heart. Two, self-righteousness is the characteristic human condition. Don't think this is about them way back there. It is about me right now and you too. One way that this characteristic human condition of self-righteousness is seen is setting up a new standard of righteousness, a new law, that anything goes but God's law. Another way is being deathly afraid of the gospel, lest your heart be unmasked, and so you cling to your own, your own supposed self-righteousness, even though it's just filthy rags, because you don't want to yield to Christ. Another way that self-righteousness is shown is in despising others. I wonder if you've ever noticed this verse. Keep your marker here. Go to Isaiah. Look at chapter 65, in which the Lord is describing what he finds among his professing people. And in Isaiah 65, verse 5, Jesus says, Isaiah 65, 5, who say, keep to yourself and do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Now, he's talking about the people here. It's the people who are saying, I'm too holy for you, you don't get near me. Holier than thou, we say. What does God think of that? Read on in verse 5. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. You know these fires we have in Florida and how they fill the community with smoke and you asthmatics have such trouble and others of us can't sleep and they make us sick with sinus infections and God says, your holier-than-thou attitude, your unwillingness to receive a fellow human being, it's like smoke up my nostrils, it stinks. Self-righteousness is the characteristic human condition and one way that it always shows is in rejection of other people, putting down other people. Third point, application. Now, if you don't like this point, it's because you really need it. I'm going to tell you, folks, the past, I almost weep to think about it. The past couple of generations that our culture, I'm talking about our culture, the past couple of generations that our culture has brought up are perhaps the most deeply self-righteous that have ever been. They've been brought up upon thorough humanism. We have a couple of generations who've never even heard of original sin. We have a couple of generations, most of whom have never even read the Ten Commandments. They've never even read them. Our children and our culture, rather, have been brought up to think, I'm a promise, I'm a possibility, a great big bundle of potentiality. We're deathly afraid 
of our children having any negative thoughts about themselves. And so sin has no meaning, and because sin has no meaning for them, why should grace? Thoroughgoing self-righteousness. A couple of generations of little egotists who have no idea that they are lost, and so they have no idea that they need a Savior. It's all about me, or sometimes it's all about my community, but they've never been told it's about neither. It's all about the glory of God. And the church has been influenced by this thoroughgoing humanistic self-righteousness, and we have contributed to these little self-worshippers. And we, we so want our children to be happy all the time that they grow up and they become thoroughly disillusioned when they find out that they're not the infinite little gods and goddesses that our culture has told them that they are. You see, it's one thing to encourage your children, and the Bible calls us to that for sure. It's another thing for us to make them think that the world revolves around them. And these generations are bringing a terrible hardening to the gospel of Jesus Christ in our culture. They need law and they need gospel. They need law. They need to hear the law of God so that in the hand of the Spirit of God their hearts will be broken up so that they will be thoroughly plowed so that they will know they need a Redeemer, a Savior. Fourth application. Anyone who truly understands what the law demands will never rely on the law of God for salvation or to maintain salvation. Never. That's what the Pharisees didn't get. They didn't understand the holy perfection of the law of God, that the law of God calls upon us to exhibit personal, perfect obedience. And the standard will never be lowered. The law of God shows us that we are not righteous. The law of God shows that we need a Savior, a Redeemer. And so anyone who truly understands what the law demands will never rely on the law for salvation. Fifth application. After this, I'll stop. I'll, I'll let you off light. Christ brought a better righteousness for sinners than ever could have been imagined by the works righteousness of the Pharisees. So that with Paul the Apostle, we need proclaim, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world. It's the cross, it's the cross, it's the cross, it's the blood of Jesus. Do you see the Son of God there dying upon a cross? If you really, with the eyes of faith, behold Him and embrace Him, then, there, your self-righteousness will die. God would never have put Him to grief if we needed no Savior. God would never have put Him to grief if you could be good enough. God would never have put Him to grief if your righteousness would avail in His presence. It's in the cross. It's in the atonement. Jesus satisfying the wrath of God against our sin, our breaking of the law. It's in the atonement that we see the blackness of our sin 
and the perfect righteousness of the substitute for sinners for everyone who puts his trust in him. Is that you? Have you put your trust in Christ alone for your redemption and your salvation? As the old hymn puts it, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's death, another's life, I'd rest my soul eternity. Don't rest on your own life. Don't rest on your own death. Rest on the life and the death of Jesus. May the Lord enable you to look immediately upon the Savior and to be preoccupied with his perfection, his wonder, his glory, and to trust alone in his perfect righteousness. And God's people said, Amen.